last week in our scripture, um, we started, it was the end of chapter 1, Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20, the second half of that chapter. And we saw there that there's a symbol in the book of Revelation, and the symbol is a lamp. And the lamp is a symbol that represents the church. Now, this was written 2,000 years ago, so it's not the kind of lamp you plug into a wall. Um, I don't think they had those back then, as far as archaeologists are telling us these days. Um, instead, the, these are oil lamps, okay? Now, these lamps, these oil lamps, represent the church. And last week, we saw that there was this other symbol. There was Christ in the middle of the lamps, in the midst of the churches. And that that's where you can find Jesus you find Jesus in the midst of the church. And the reason Jesus is in the midst of the church is in order to show himself to the world. But this week we see that he's in the midst of the church not only to reveal himself to the world, he does that through the church, but he's also in the midst of the church in order to make sure the church doesn't burn out. That the church is... It's lamps. It's not the oil. It's not the wick. The church isn't the source of its own shining that Jesus is in the midst of the church. And he's there not just to shine through, but to make sure that the church burns brightly. And so this morning, we've come to these seven letters, seven messages that Jesus is sending to these seven churches that are spread around Asia Minor, what we call today Turkey. And these churches are supposed to shine the light of Christ, the light of the creator, the God of all things, who is love and life. They're supposed to shine this love and shine this light into the world. But there's a catch. Some really dark times are coming. Now, these churches are in the middle of the Roman Empire. It's the early 60s. It's right before the moment that Jesus was talking about in Matthew 24. Our gospel reading, Matthew chapter 24, Jesus says, see this temple? There's not going to be the temple in Jerusalem. Not a stone's going to be left. Nation's going to turn against nation. It's going to be cataclysmic. It's going to be apocalyptic. There, there's going to be such incredible things happen, you will say the world as we know it no longer exists. And what he's talking about is AD 70. So Jesus is talking in the mid-30s, and he's telling the, his followers, before your generation passes away, something so insane, so cataclysmic, so mind-boggling is going to occur that you will say, our world ceased to exist. And what he's talking about is that in the late 60s, the Jewish people and the Romans are going to go to war against each other. Nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom. And by the end of it, not one stone of the temple is going to be left. And then he goes on to say, it's going to be so dark, people are going to turn, Christians are going to fall away. So here now, fast forward almost 30 years, and here's the church, and they're in the early 60s. In 64, the emperor of Rome by the name of Nero begins to turn against the church, and he begins to kill Christians. It becomes a pogrom, a, an official 
killing of Christians by the Roman Empire. So here is Jesus sending these messages to these churches buried in the Roman Empire and saying, it is about to get dark, really, really dark. And the reason he's writing these letters is because he wants them to stay bright in the darkness. And one of the things that we see in these letters is that Satan has nestled down into two places. It says um, a synagogue of Satan, and then in another letter it says the seat of Satan. So what's happening is that the power of Satan is nestling down into the Jewish community. And the word Satan means accuser. The Jewish community is beginning to accuse the Christians of not being real Jews. They're accusing them to the Roman government. And the Roman government, Jews had a protected status. Well, now the Jews are outing the Christians and saying they're not part of us. And so they no longer have a protected status. The second place that Satan's power is nestling down is in the Roman Empire. So what's happening is the Roman Empire is turning on the Christians, the Jews are turning on the Christians, and they're being squeezed. They're being pushed in between these two pressure points. And that's making it go very dark for the Christians. And these letters are sent to them to say, all that's about to happen. You're, you're just a couple of years away. This thing that Jesus said before this generation is gone is going to happen, it's about to happen before like the next few years are up. And so Jesus sends these messages. Now the first message, if you have your Bible, uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, the first message is to the church in Ephesus. There's a church in Ephesus. And these Ephesians have worked hard for Jesus. And he's delighted with them. And in verse 2, we hear, Revelation chapter 2, verse 2, we hear that they have been patient under the threat of persecution. And they've drawn a clear line between those who are really following Jesus and those who are just kind of faking it. And in verse 6, we hear that there are things that Jesus hates. And this church shares Jesus' hatred for the things Jesus hates. In other words, tolerance is a virtue except when it's not. Right? So we all want tolerance, but do you want to tolerate child abuse? No. In fact, if somebody tolerates child abuse, that's evil, right? So it, nobody is in favor of tolerance all the time, right? The question is, are you tolerating the right things, and are you intolerant of the bad things? And this church has it lined up right. The stuff that Jesus doesn't tolerate, the stuff he hates, they hate. They're, they hate. Their tolerance is clicked in and calibrated to Jesus' tolerance. But there's a problem with the church in Ephesus. On the one hand, while they are rightly concerned to hate stuff that they're supposed to hate, on the other hand, they seem to have forgotten how to love. That's an easy thing to do, isn't it? I mean, that's the thing we're all concerned about when it comes to tolerance and intolerance. And apparently, they've dialed it in on what's right and what's wrong, and they've stopped loving. And that's an easy trap to fall into, to settle down into a vaguely comfortable existence, to put your own prejudices at the center of the table where you, where you hate the right things, but really it's just a cloak for your, I don't know, your class consciousness or something like that. And the Ephesian church needs to wake up to remember how things used to be when they first fell in love with Jesus. Jesus is supposed to be everything, and this church no longer puts Jesus first. Jesus is a lover, and he seeks a passionate bride. 
The second message is to the church in another city, a church in the city of Smyrna. This church is doing really good. They are faithful to Jesus, and they love Jesus, and their commitment to, the, to truth is good. Not only is that good, but also their commitment to love is good. They got both going on, and they are paying a price for it. Notice in verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty. The word poverty there is not a metaphor. It's legit. It's real. They are losing money because they are Christians. You see, they live in a very rich city, and they're being excluded from the lucrative business deals because of their faith. And it's adding up. First, you miss out on this promotion because you're a Christian. Then you miss out on this one. Then you get let go from this job. And all of that stuff adds up until you're not just like going down the socioeconomic ladder. You're, you're descending into poverty. And that's what's happening with them. And it's about to get worse. Look at verse 10. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. What are we about to suffer, Jesus? I mean, we've already been driven into poverty. What could be beyond this? Notice what it says next. They're going to be thrown into prison and some killed. Well, that's what's beyond it, right? Driven into poverty, then thrown into prison, and some of them are going to be killed for the faith. But notice the end of verse 11. Those who conquer will not be hurt by the second death. So they're about, some of them are about to die. And he says, don't be afraid. Because if you conquer, you won't experience the second death. So a couple of things here. Apparently, there's two deaths. Did you know this? Like, I thought dead is dead, right? Haven't you watched The Princess Bride? Not mostly dead, not partly dead, but all the way dead, right? Well, apparently, the first death is what we normally talk about when we talk about dying. It's when a person stops breathing, and their brain stops working, and they pass away. And some Christians are about to go through that because of their Christianity. But our Lord Jesus Christ has gone through that. But when he went to the grave, he carried a key with him. And he opened a door on the backside of the grave. And he rose to new life again. And what we're seeing here is that those of us who conquer, you don't know what conquer is until you read the whole book of Revelation. You find out by the end of it, conquering means you don't deny the faith in the face of death. Those who in the face of death, when they're given a choice, renounce the faith or die for the faith, Those who conquer their fear and conquer their shame, those who conquer their their extreme love for comfort, those who conquer faithfully in that way. By the way, in the book of Revelation, you conquer through witness and song. Those who go to their death singing faithfully to the Lord Jesus Christ, he will take that key and he will open up the grave. And they will come through the backside of the grave just like Jesus did. And they will live a new life, another life. And so for them, the first will be last and the last first. For them, death, which is supposed to be last, will become the beginning. It will become the beginning of a new life. But those who refuse, those who buckle, those who in the face of persecution say, Nope, I'm not a Christian. Those who do not conquer their selfishness and their fear. Those who do not give their love and their loyalty to worship Jesus and stay true to him. They will go through a second death. And this will be the death of their soul. 
And in the same way we all know about somebody's body's body decomposing and dying, he's saying what you really need to be afraid of is your soul dying. That's a real death that will really occur to human beings. But those who are content to go through the first death with Jesus will survive the second death. The third message is to the church in the city of Pergamum. And this church is also going through persecution. And they are holding on to the faith. They are not caving in in the middle of this intense pressure. Remember these two pressures coming in on them. And yet, listen to verse 14. You're not caving in. You're holding on. Verse 14. And yet I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So here's the deal. He's referring to some characters from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the king of Moab, not Israel, an enemy of Israel, the king of Moab was um, this guy by the name of Balak. And he hired Balaam to help him figure out how to defeat Israel. And the way Balaam taught Balak to defeat Israel was by getting the Israelite men to turn away from God by falling in love with women who did not worship God. And this led them to compromise. First a little bit here, then a little bit there. So apparently in the church of Pergamum, um, there were just a few folks who were beginning to compromise Because of their love for their friends, for their spouse, who was not a Christian, they were beginning to compromise with the surrounding Roman culture. The same tactic still works today. One of the fastest routes to leave the Christian faith is to compromise in who you fall in love with. And the justifications are different today than they were then. But the result is the same. The fourth message is to the church in the city of Thyatira. And here again you have a church that is doing so well in so many ways. Verse 19. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance. And the latter works exceed the first. In other words, you're growing up. You're becoming more and more mature. You are loving God and loving people and staying true to the faith. And serving this world and patiently enduring the persecution. But, like the church in Pergamum, they are tolerating people among the, in the church who are compromising when it comes to their love life, their sexuality, and this business about eating food sacrificed to idols. Now, what is this? Eating food sacrificed to idols is about economics. It's about business. You see, Thyatira was famous for its industries. And its industries, its businesses, were all closed shops. They were union shops. They, had, they didn't call them unions then, they called them guilds. The local industries were organized around guilds. So it would be sort of like the mailmen's guild, the professor's guild, the really good-looking people's guild. You know, all the like groups, all the work, all the jobs had unions, had guilds. And these guilds had meetings. 
And at these meetings, there was always some sort of quasi-religious ceremony. Remember Greco-Roman culture, like Greek mythology, Roman mythology? All of these, like, unions had their patron gods. And any time they did, any time the, the, like, Weaver's Guild got together or the Carpenter's Guild, it, not only did they do guild business, they would also have a meal and give a toast to their god and sacrifice meat to their god. I mean, it's just what everybody did. And apparently, when they got together at their conventions, it was sort of like when people get together at work conventions in America today. There was lots of sexual immorality. And it seems that about half the church in Thyatira was saying, it's just the price of doing business. I mean, if I don't join the guild, if I don't go through these ceremonies, my children are going to starve. I, I don't get to have a job. And so about half the church had figured out a way you can be a Christian and play in that game. The biblical view on this stuff was just a little too narrow. And again, the issue is compromise. The church in Sardis, the next message, Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, this church has a great reputation for being faithful to God and loving God. The only problem is... They're hypocrites. They're faking it. Notice the middle of verse 1. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. They've gone to sleep spiritually. Their way of being a Christian, it, it just leaves a lot to be desired. They are spiritually lazy. They're just showing up for church on Sunday mornings. They're just going through the motions, but they're not really putting any effort into it. But that's not the way Christianity works. Christianity, you see, is an all or nothing thing. Either Jesus really is your Lord and he really deserves your absolute allegiance or he's a sham and you should reject him. But there is no middle line. This is a binary situation. It's either all in or all out and it simply won't do to fake it. Just belonging to a church, just being baptized, just being a member of a church is not enough. Reputation is not enough. It's not enough that people in the city think that you're a Christian. But here's the thing. For this church, it's not too late. They can still wake up. They've got a little bit of time left. Now, how does a person who's spiritually asleep wake up? Here's a very simple way to think about this. Do something that Jesus tells you to do. Just start obeying him. Instead of asking yourself whether you believe in Jesus or not, ask yourself, have I done anything that Jesus told me to do lately or not? Have I not done something just because he told me don't do something? You see, it's absurd to say that you believe in Jesus or that you want to believe in Jesus if you're not doing anything he tells you. If you can think of nothing he has ever said that has an atom of influence on what you do or don't do, well, then you can't really claim to be a Christian. And you can't complain about struggling with belief because you're not struggling with belief. You're just playing around. But you can begin at once. 
to be a disciple of the creator who is the lover of your soul by obeying him in the first thing you can think of right now that you're not obeying him in. You see, you must learn to obey Jesus in everything. And to obey Jesus in everything, you just have to start somewhere. What is the very thing that is lying at the door of your conscience? Don't be slow of heart. Wake up while there's still time. Verse 7 through 13 is, is the sixth church, the church in Philadelphia. Now here we have a great church. They are staying true. They are holding on to Jesus in the face of intense persecution. They are refusing to compromise and to grow complacent. They're they're getting this right. And so Jesus tells them in verse 8, notice, I have set before you an open door. So this church is about to have an opportunity as the darkness descends, as Rome comes at them from one side and the Jewish communities come at them from the other side, and as they get squeezed in that pressure, when there is so much pressure to compromise and so much pressure to grow complacent, this church is refusing to do that. And Jesus says, in the darkness, I'm going to open a door for you. Now notice what it says in the middle of verse 8. They don't have much power. Like, they're not walking through the door all strong and all, their job is to just pick up their courage and go for it because God is giving them an opportunity to take the good news of Jesus into places and into hearts where it's never been before. And it's going to happen in this dark time. The final letter is to the church in Laodicea. Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 22. Look at verse 15. I know your works. That's what he says to every church, right? I know, I know who you are. He knows what they're going through. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. So it's not like the church in Pergamum or Thyatira or Sardis. This church isn't struggling with compromise. This church is complacent. And it's clear, isn't it, that being lukewarm with Jesus is not a minor offense. I will spit you out of my mouth. He's quoting from the book of Leviticus and from Numbers where God says he will spit Israel out of the promised land if they start killing babies and committing idolatry. So clearly Jesus does not consider lukewarmness a like kind of like thing he just kind of waits around for. It's an abomination just as much as compromising on sexual morality or idolatry. These Christians have found a way to get rich in the Roman Empire. And the way it works for them is they just don't take their Christianity that seriously. No rough edges. No hard stands. And the paychecks just keep coming in. But while their bank accounts are full, their relationship with God is impoverished. So notice what Jesus tells him in verse 17. You say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Literally true. They're rich. They figured out how to game the system. How to be a Christian and not lose out on the good life. But you don't realize you are wretched, pitiable, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Do you remember the church at Smyrna? They were literally poor but spiritually rich. Church at Laodicea is literally rich but spiritually poor. And so what's his advice to them? What does Jesus tell them to do in light of the state, in light of being so lukewarm? 
I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be jealous and repent. It's an irony. I thought they didn't have anything spiritually. Like if they're in poverty, how can they buy something? Like he says, you're poor, you need to get rich. So here, buy something to get rich. It's a paradox. How can someone with no money become rich by buying something? That's the point. The point is that Jesus is opening a market and he's already covered the cost. Look what it says next. Verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Um, my grandparents, both sides, Christians, raised both my mom and dad to be Christians. My mom and dad have served God their whole lives. They raised me as a Christian. And I embraced the faith. As a child, I learned about Jesus. I prayed the prayers. I sang the songs. I was a part of the church. As a teenager, I was a part of the youth group. And somewhere along the way, I got lazy. So that by the time I was a sophomore in high school, I was compromising some of the ways we've heard about this morning. At the end of my junior year, my family, we were um, spending a week in New Orleans with our friends. I was born in New Orleans, but uh, after sixth grade, we had moved to Houston. We're back in New Orleans. We're visiting our, this, this family friends. Their name's the Chapels. We're at the Chapels house, and I am keenly aware that I am living a double life. One way at church and at home and another way with my friends and my girlfriend and at school. It was June of 1990. I was 17 years old. <laughs> um, growing up as a Christian, I memorized a lot of scripture because we were Baptist and we memorized a lot of scripture. <laughs> so keep that in mind. I, I, this is a very clear memory. I'm sleeping in the downstairs on the fold-out couch because I'm the youngest child in the family and that's where you get booted, right? So there's this bar in my back. And, so I'm sleeping and um, I wake up in the middle of the night and I am nauseous. And um, I run to the bathroom and I start vomiting. And um, while I'm vomiting, this verse goes through my mind. I know your works, Aubrey. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth. Now look, I wasn't like hunched over the toilet thinking through all my scripture memory. I was busy. I didn't, I didn't invite this verse in. And so I cried out. I said, Jesus, I'm so sorry. Please make this stop. And it stopped. I stopped immediately. No nauseous. No nauseousness at all. I go back to bed. Another few minutes later, a few hours later, I wake up. I'm nauseous again. I run to the bathroom. I'm throwing up. And this verse comes into my mind, unbidden. I know your works, Aubrey. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm, I'm about to spew you out of my mouth. And I, I start, in, when I can get my breath, I cry out to God, I'm so sorry. Forgive me. I will come home. And it stopped, the nausea. The nausea was gone. I went back to bed. I woke up again. By this time, I'm dry heaving. 
the verses in my mind. I know your deeds. You're lukewarm. I'm spewing you out of my mouth. And I cry out, Lord, please make this stop. I will come home to you. For me, coming home was three things. My closest friends were not Christians, and we were doing bad things together. My girlfriend was not a Christian, and I knew that that was not right. And I hated my brother. And I had to forgive him. And I knew that that was what the repentance was for me. That's what it meant for me to come home. Jesus knocks. Now you might say, that's so goofy, Aubrey. You really, God's got this whole universe to deal with. It says over and over, I know your works. I know your works. I know your works. And to the church at Pergamum, he says, to the church at Thyatira, he says, if you would come to me, I will give you a name that nobody else knows. That's, that's, a lo- that's what lovers do. That's a pet name. This is about intimacy. Remember I said at the beginning, Jesus is a lover who's looking for a passionate bride. The, he's knocking. This, that, that phrase, he stands at the door and knocks. If those of you were here last week, that's Song of Solomon chapter 5, verse 2. When the lover stands at the door and knocks. This is what he is. This is the lover. He wants to come into you. He, he, wants, he wants to have an intimate relationship with you. He wants to save you from the second death. He wants, to give you, he wants to give you a meal at the tree of life. Last week we saw that Jesus is the fairest of 10,000. He is our greatest lover. And he is a lover who is seeking a passionate bride. Wake up. Repent. Be zealous for the Lord. 